The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 228, I believe. Today we have an interview with a former Olympic swimmer named Carrie Bates. At 15, Carrie Bates won gold medals in four times 100 meter freestyle and four times 100 meter relays, which she parlayed into Olympic wins the very next year. Beneath the brightness of her wins, though, something dark was percolating and about to rear its head. Bates first t- tasted alcohol on a 14 hour flight from Tokyo. Still, Her competitive swimming career continued after her 84 gold medal wins and meeting then-President Reagan. She's now in recovery, and she hasn't just found sobriety, she's found purpose. Without further ado, let's talk to Carrie Bates and hear her story. Carrie Bates, thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story with us. I'm Super excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So tell us, where did you grow up? What was your life like? School, all of that. How did you get into swimming? Yeah. So um, primarily, um, I was in a family with a corporate father. So we transferred quite a bit when I was really young. But the majority of my upbringing was in Northern California in the Bay Area. And um, I went to school and all the way through high school. Um, But I started swimming um, at a young age. I was about five when I learned to swim and probably around eight when I started swimming on my first kind of official swim team, if you will. Wow. That seems young to me. Is that, are there younger people, younger kids? Yeah, there's younger, you know, but even at eight, what's changed, I think today with regards to sports that was different when I was young is you know, we didn't specialize in one, um, one sport that at that young, we did, I did gymnastics and ran track and did all these other things for us today. These kids start to focus on one sport younger and younger, which I'm not sure is such a great thing, but. Yeah, I'm not sure it is either. I, I, it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting. I didn't know that. I think it makes more Mm -hmm. sense to be perhaps a little more well-rounded, but whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you started swimming somewhat competitively at eight and mm-hmm. then take us from there. How did that progress? You know, I just happened to really love the sport of swimming and I was also good at it. And I think just as human beings, we kind of gravitate to where we find success. Um, you know, I also was growing up in an alcoholic home as a child. My mother was an alcoholic and really swimming and going to practice every day. By the time I was 11, I was swimming twice a day, two and a half hours in the morning before school, I'd go to school all day. And then I was swimming two and a half hours in the evening. So the pool kind of became my family and my safe space, really. You know, when you grow up in the chaos of alcoholism, it it can be very unsettling. And um, the pool became kind of where I would go and work out all of my fear and my um, anger and frustration. And I always said, nobody could really see me cry underwater. You know, it's really where all of my emotion and everything would come out was when I was kind of in, in that pool. So it became a very safe place for me as a kid, because um, it was my escape. 
but the good news is I happen to be good at it. So as I got better and my career um, progressed, it really gave me this life away from home at a very young age. Okay. So you were, you were going on the road and competing. Oh, hello, thunder. <laughs> I don't know oh, if that's, gosh, I, I heard that. I know it's, it's a big thunderstorm here. Okay. So, so you were going on the road. So that also gave you somewhat of a respite from whatever yeah. was going on in your family. Correct. I was traveling nationally from about the age of 11. And then I started traveling internationally at the age of about 15. Wow mighty young to be traveling like that. Yeah. And no cell phones, no nothing. So I would be gone for a month at a time and, and really never, I wouldn't really speak with my mom and dad because you just didn't, there was nobody calling home, you know, collect from Japan. Right. Back then. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So it, was, so it was great. You know, that it, swimming really gave me it gave me all of my opportunities in my, in my life, you know, from the ability to travel the world and to see beautiful places, um, to compete at a really, really high level. Um, and then also it, it was just kind of became my family. It was really my home away from home. Understood. Did you have siblings, Carrie? I do. I'm the baby of four kids. So I have a brother that's, um, just a couple years older than I am. I have a sister that's about 12 years older than I am. And then I have an older brother. So we really kind of had two families, same parents, but they had two kids. And then about 10 years later, they had two more. So I'm the, I'm the last. Okay. Now was the alcoholism, was it present when your much older brothers were, when they no, it started later in life? Yep. It was later. It was later in life. Yep. It was later for my mom. Um, But in, in all fairness, she had a pre a predisposition for it genetically too. Okay. So, um, you know, the, the, the genetic component runs very strong in my family. And so, as a matter of fact, my oldest brother is also in recovery and I am also in recovery. So um, it's a very strong genetic component in our family, um, but it didn't start with my mom. I see. I see. Are your mom and dad, are they still alive? No, nope, I've lost oh. both of my parents. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. So... When you were going to Japan, now I'm forgive me. I mean, I obviously watched the Olympics when they happened, but what led up? What leads up to the Olympics? Because you weren't there yet, right? No, not yet. So in the sport of swimming, it's all about time. It's about how fast you are. It's not. There's no subjective uh, parts about swimming. It's all about who touches the ball first and how you're ranked in the world and how you're ranked here in the U.S. So um, it's all about time. So. My first international competition, oddly enough, when I was in Japan and flew home was really the first time I had ever taken a drink. It was on an airline, on an airplane, where back then they didn't ask for IDs. We were with the um, Team USA. So we kind of got to do whatever we wanted. And oddly enough, that was the first time that I took a drink. And I remember at that age feeling very, very insecure. I was riddled with insecurities, that whole, I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. Even though my swimming career was escalating and escalating very rapidly, there was still this whole part inside of me, kind of this big hole in my soul that I didn't know what to call it then, Hmm. but I, I filled it with swimming and training and train harder and go to school and make national teams and what's your world ranking? You know, that's how I filled that emptiness inside of me. So after Japan, 
when I was 15, I qualified for the United States um, Olympic team the following year. So I was only 16 years old when I made the Olympic team. And to qualify for the U.S. team, you have to touch the wall first or second. That's just what it boils down to. And I was blessed enough to be one of those two that did that. And were you were you one of the youngest to compete was, in your sport? Okay, I was. I was one of the youngest in, in 1984 because we had, of course, had the 1980 boycott where our Olympic team did not participate in the 1980 Olympics. So a lot of the people, a lot of the kids from the 80 team decided to stick around four more years for the 84 team. So that did make put them in an older age group college or even some postgraduates now that's now that's um normal you see a lot of postgraduates i'm not sure if you watched the olympics over the last couple of weeks but there's late 20s early 30 year olds that are still competing but see they can make money doing it today whereas we we didn't make any money doing it back then uh, so they can they can really it's really a job for them so yeah okay. so um so did your drinking escalate then while you went to the Olympics? Did it start it didn't. to escalate? It didn't. You know, I, I can, the only thing I can really relate to as a young teen, and then even through kind of my college years, was um, just that really insecure feeling that alcohol seemed to kind of take away. Like, I remember standing on the on the highest platform at the Olympic Games, biggest stage in the world, and getting that medal put around my neck and feeling like I had no idea who I was, mm. no idea. I, I, I just was so full of insecurities. And even back then, as I look back on my drinking, alcohol made me feel how oh, braver and prettier and more accepted and more social, you know, it just gave me all these things that made me feel better out of my own skin, if that makes sense. So, but I wouldn't say I drank alcoholically then, you know, I would say that we had definitely a mentality of we worked hard and we played really hard too. So I don't really think that I drank any differently. I do think about four years later, my story four years later at Olympic trials was I was still ranked number one in the world. And I did not make that Olympic team. And I had no, that was never a consideration that I wouldn't be on that team. And I had no backup plan, no plan B. What was I going to do with my life? What did that even look like? And that was the first time that I really remember drinking specifically to not feel. Right. And I, I can understand that. And the fact that you didn't qualify you just weren't the first or second to the wall. I mean, you didn't have Correct. an injury or nothing was going. Nope. Wow. No, I just lost it mentally. Wow. And so I was in the best shape of my life and I lost it mentally and um, I didn't qualify. And truly that was really the beginning of my, my down tick. It took many years to get to kind of that proverbial bottom for me, but that was when all of those feelings that most of us alcoholics and addicts have of not being enough, um, inadequacy, um, shame. I felt shame over not making the team. Like all these really toxic emotions really started for me at that point in my life. And really, it, they really followed me, even though to the outside world, 
I had a successful job. I ended up married. I had two beautiful daughters. I was still so torn, tortured on the inside. Wow. Well, what, where did, what did you do after you didn't qualify? You said you didn't have a backup plan. What, what did you do? I had no backup plan. I stopped swimming for about a year. Um, I thought I was done. I thought I didn't want to swim anymore. And then I realized about a year later that I really wasn't retiring or quitting on my own terms. So I did go back to the sport for about a year, um, trained really hard, made another national team, Team USA, super proud of that. And then I felt a lot of peace with kind of walking away from that part of my life. What I didn't really anticipate was all of the um, all of the after effects of leaving life, uh, um, leaving that elite sport, elite athlete life. I was not prepared for that. You know, there is, there is so much adrenaline and so much, um, um, performance anxiety and thrill and agony and all of these emotions on both sides of the spectrum as an elite athlete. And, and when the lights go off and there's no more racing and there's no more winning and there's no more adrenaline rushes and training and that constant direction and focus in my life, I was lost for a long time. I really had um, no idea once again, who I was, because I knew I was more than just an Olympic athlete. You know, we watched last week as Simone Biles talked about that, about not being a human doing, but that we're human beings, right? I wish I had had the strength to do what Simone did and just flat out say, it's okay to not be okay. And I'm going to take care of myself right now. And I didn't do that. I was never given the permission to do that. So I lived this life, many years of this life of hiding the fact that I was just dying on the inside, but trying to be what everyone thought I should be on the outside. You know, this image of what, I don't even know what that image is, but I felt that pressure to be what everyone thought I was, which was somehow perfect. And I was so far from that. So that just continued to pile that shame and guilt in my own head about who and what I was. And that's what really started to stoke that fire of my alcoholism. So first of all, I completely understand, um, you know, what was going on. Not that I've experienced it myself, but I, I, I just, I understand what you're telling me. So you, you said you got married and you had kids were you an alcoholic while all that was going on or I've been an alcoholic since I was born, to be honest with you. I, I really think that the genetic predisposition predisposition in our family was so strong. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I was going to avoid this one. Uh, the, the Olympic gold medal certainly didn't leave me immune to my addiction and to my mental health struggles and to all the other life challenges that most human, a lot of human beings have. Um, but, uh, but really, I don't think I started drinking alcoholically when my kids were pretty young. Um, and, you know, it really started as innocently as 
us raising our kids with other families and we, and alcohol was just always present in our lives. You know, we, we started drinking on Friday and Saturday nights and oftentimes the whole group would overdrink. Um, but we were having fun and nobody really thought anything of it. It was, it was as those few years when, you know, this was a pretty fast and furious disease for me. It hit me really hard without me knowing it was hitting me really hard. And, um, and then, and my demise, my, my downslide with this was very quick and very painful. And so, you know, I didn't think anything of our drinking, but then I noticed that, you know, in hindsight, when I got sober, I was able to kind of look back at that time and realize that most people could drink on Friday and Saturday nights and be done for the week. And then slowly there were more days that were kind of adding in and I was finding excuses to drink. And I was finding people that would drink with me, wine lunches with people, um, play dates for kids with other moms that would be willing to kind of buy into that wine noon drinking baby on the hip wine on the lip culture that was so was just kind of starting to be prevalent Hmm. um I was kind of hiding started to hide how much I was drinking um and then you know obviously my my now ex-husband and friends at, at a certain point did start to vocalize some concerns about um how much I was drinking and how did you react to that Oh, I thought I was angry. I was very, very angry. But, you know, I think the disease. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name. Or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or Call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. I wanted to tell you about an organization that I know about personally. Pro Athletes in Recovery, P-A-R-R, or PAIR, is a group of professional athletes who have recovered together. Their primary focus in attacking the drug problem includes prevention, education, and intervention. PEAR was founded by former Tampa Bay Buccaneer Randy Grimes and has a passion for helping fellow athletes and others break the cycle of addiction. For more information or to contact them, go to proathletesinrecovery.org or call 713-397-8012, or you can email them at info at proathletesinrecovery.org. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. 
the disease of addiction wants to be protected at all costs. Yep. And so when, when my friends and family started voicing their concerns, um, I did what any good alcoholic would do. And I pushed every one of those people away because I had to protect the disease needed to be protected. Um, so ultimately, uh, through, through some tragic circumstances, um, I ended up in treatment for my first time in 2010. Um, it was the first of four residential treatment centers I would um, go to in a two-year span of time. I also did outpatient treatments that I drank through. I did one-on-one -on -one therapy that I drank through. Um, I was very, very sick. And what I didn't realize at the time, actually, I'll go back and tell you that the first time I ended up in treatment, my husband had um, moved out of our family home and was in a different home. The girls had two homes at that point. How old were they, Carrie? Uh, let's see, Maya, my youngest was probably seven and my oldest, Gabby, was probably 10. And so um, I really remember being in the fetal position on my kitchen floor that first weekend or week that they spent at their dad's new home with a bottle. And I had absolutely no idea. I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to be without my kids and my husband was gone. And so I was on the phone with a friend of mine and um, I was very suicidal. And um, they called the police to do a welfare check on me. And I ended up in treatment for my first time the very next day. Um, I was really broken. I was um, drinking a lot during the day at that time. I was, um, I was very, very broken and very lost. And so I went to treatment for the first time in 2010 and I stayed for 30 days. What was that like? What was the treatment like? Um, I, I think I was in a great place. I don't think I was ready because I don't think I really understood what alcoholism was. And I don't think I really understood how sick I was. Um, all I knew was that I needed to get better so that I could get home and be a mom to my kids and go back to work. You know, don't, you know, I, I have a busy life. I have a job. Mm -hmm. I have kids. I have, I have a life I need to get back to. Right. So I did my 30 days and I got A's in treatment. Oh, my projects look beautiful and on my timelines and everything they asked me to do was just perfect, except the tiny little piece of the fact that I wasn't honest. Mm. I didn't get honest in treatment and honest and, and truthfully that ended up being my biggest stumbling block in getting sober was the fact that I couldn't tell my truth. I was so ashamed of who and what I had become that I, I could not get honest, even in a treatment environment, because I, what would you have thought of me if you were my counselor? You know, here I am Olympic gold medalist, mom, successful work. And I'm sitting in a treatment center and you want me to tell you all my deepest and darkest secrets. And I couldn't get there. I told them enough to where they thought I was doing okay but I didn't tell them the truth. And therefore, guess what? I went home and I didn't stay sober. And so unfortunately my consequences started coming very, very quickly. Um, I lost my job. I 
lost my friends. I had lost my marriage. I was I had lost my family. Um, I went to back to the same treatment center about a year later and stayed about 45 days. And I didn't stay sober at all when I left that time. Um, I was being served with divorce papers and all the things in treatment. And I just really didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the, the capabilities to know how to start to manage that. And then um, I got sober in February. My sobriety date was February 1st of 2012. And um, about two weeks before I entered treatment, I was very suicidal. I was drinking around the clock. Um, I had no idea if it were night or day outside unless I looked out my blinds, which were always closed. I was alone. My kids no longer were allowed to come and see me because my ex-husband knew that I was not safe. Um, and my very first spiritual moment was waking up one morning and knowing that I had taken my last drink. I don't know why. I don't know um, what happened to make me, and I didn't wake up, let's be honest, I came to, hmm. and um, I knew I had taken my last drink, but I also knew that I wasn't going to check into treatment, that I was going to detox at home alone, which is very dangerous, not, not recommended. Right. And that I made the promise to myself that if I, if I survived detox in my home alone, that I would go to treatment one last time to see if I could save my life. And so I went through a very painful, I still get emotional talking about it. It was a very, very painful and dangerous five days. I don't remember a lot of it. I do know I had seizures um, and I survived and I got on a plane and I flew down to a treatment center in California because I knew I needed to get away from Oregon. I was just, I know, I, 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 I know we've talked many times on the podcast about how withdrawal from alcohol can be very dangerous. Um, obviously there was a higher power that felt you should, you know, you should get through it because it, it can kill you. I knew, I knew that if I, if I survived it, that there was a, a greater purpose for me. And that purpose is doing exactly what we're doing today is sitting with someone like you sharing my story to give other people hope that they can have this unbelievable life that I couldn't even dream of when I was drinking. So I, I got on that plane and I, and I didn't look back, you know, I, I went down to treatment. I stayed in treatment for 90 days and it was the greatest gift I ever gave myself. Um, and I did absolutely everything that, that was asked of me. And, and then some, if they had told me to stand on my head in the corner for 30 minutes a day to get sober, I would have stood in, on my head in that corner. And I will tell you that it was the very first time that I told my truth. I sat in those groups and I said things that made people really, really freaking uncomfortable, but I had to tell my truth if I was going to save my life. Um, I came home after 90 days in treatment and I was um, sent uh, custody papers from my ex-husband. And so at 93 days sober, I walked into a courtroom and I had my legal rights as a mother taken away. Oh, and that's uh, after you got clean. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so the judge said to me that day, all you have to do is stay sober for two years and you'll have all your rights back as a mom. And I said, please don't say 
all you have to do to, is to stay sober for two years to someone like me, because I couldn't stay sober two days, let alone two weeks, two months, two years felt like an insurmountable amount of time. Yeah. And somehow, some way through the, through the program that I chose for sobriety and the help of that program and the people in that program that taped my ass off every time it fell off, two years came and I, and I got, I got all of my rights back as a mom and, and I did other things too. I will say in those two years, I did my own monitoring program. I um, peed in a cup probably two times a week because my ex-husband could also test me anytime he wanted. Um, I did absolutely everything I could to put as much accountability in place for myself so that I could give myself the best shot of staying sober. And that's what I had to do. I had to be held accountable on many different levels in order to get this thing. Because, you know, I have stinking thinking, you know, I, I can, I negotiated with this disease so many times. I would listen to the voice of this disease. Tell me it won't be that bad this time. I won't do that to you again. Um, just a couple drinks. We won't have as many as we did last night. And every single time I negotiated with this disease, I lost and I lost, I, and I lost big, I lost everything that mattered in my life. I lost because I negotiated with this disease. Hmm. I don't do that anymore. I don't negotiate it. I will tell you that what I do is I've made my, um, my enemy, my friend, because my disease still lives in me. It's still active. It's still there. As a matter of fact, it's probably, yep. It's out front doing push-ups. you know, while I'm sitting here talking to you because that's the nature of my disease. Um, and you know, after those 90 days, after the 90 days in treatment, and then the kind of two years that I spent, um, putting my life together. And I'm telling you, when I got home from treatment, I had a sponsor that I would call in the morning and say, I'm awake. What do I do now? <laughs> and she would say, have you made your bed? Nope. Make your bed and call me back. I'd call her back. I made my bed. What do I do now? And I'm a 40 something year old woman who has children and a career that I had lost. I mean, it's not like I didn't know how to function, but I didn't know how to function without alcohol. I had absolutely no idea how to, how to have create a life without alcohol. Wow. And then after those two years, I made the decision. I finally was able to look at myself in the mirror. It took me two years to sober, to be able to look at myself in the mirror. And it took me another two years of recovery until I finally decided that I was going to go public with my story because I hid in my addiction. And at four years sober, I made the decision that I was not going to hide in my recovery because it is the damn best thing that I've ever done in my life. It is by far my greatest accomplishment, way greater than those three medals that sit, sit in my safety deposit box. I mean, sobriety is my it's my freaking superpower. Honestly, like the strongest, <laughs> bravest people I know are the people that I know in recovery. And I, I am that. so I proud of it. I'm I love that. So it's your superpower. It. I like it is that, my Carrie. Superpower. I like that. You know, every time and you we know have... what, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Even my kids, I have grown children now. 
And even my kids are like, my mom's a, like a badass. Like they think that I'm pretty cool. You know, I mean, because of my sobriety, not because of all the things, you know, I went from years in speaking in my kid's school. I take my medals, the newspapers, the sports illustrated to show all the kids, all the things in school. And then guess who goes and talked, who was talking to their schools before they finished high school and middle school about sobriety. <laughs> it was their mom. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, talk about life coming full circle. Right. But there was a lot of judgment. You know, if, if there are people that are listening to this, that are still active in addiction or newly sober, and you are feeling every ounce of that stigma against addicts and alcoholics and the shame don't listen to it it is such a bs stigma there is no shame in being sober let me tell you the greatest days and months and years of your life are in front of you if they had told me when i left treatment to write a script of what my life would look like at one year five years and now almost 10 years sober I would have sold myself short on what my life would have looked like. I love that. I mean, I love that. I usually ask for a message when the interview is is over and you just gave it right there. It's perfect. It's inspiring and it's honest. And I know that it's going to resonate with people. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. I know you have to talk about a part of your life that you're not really proud of. But the fact that you have this new superpower, your sobriety, which I love, you know, and the fact that you're willing to share your story, I, I, can't, I cannot stress to you how much that means to the people who listen to this podcast. Well, thank you. And, and I, I will say that I, there are a few things that I would go back and change, right? The, the pain I inflicted on my kids, I can never undo. Um, but I, I am not... I am not, not proud of my life, even the bad parts, because without them, I would not be able to sit here today and talk the way I can about addiction and recovery. You know, I can sit here and be proud of the Olympics and be proud of the gold medals, but to be honest, all of that happened for me to sit here with you today and talk about something so much more important than the Olympics. And we're talking about addiction, recovery, and mental health awareness. Like, I mean, what a gift to be able to do that. And swimming only gave me the platform to be able to do what I get to do today. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Carrie, for talking to us today. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. I thought that was a great interview. Carrie definitely has a story that I'm sure is going to resonate with some of you. Um, we will be back again next week with another interview. And I'm going to give you my mantra that I give at the end of every podcast. I don't know how many of you stay till the end. But if you need help, please reach out. There are so many people out there that are just willing to help you. And if you know somebody who needs help, please reach out. You can always call Bobby Newman. You can call lots of different organizations, mentoring organizations that will help you. But the point is, don't wait, because addiction is not going to wait, and it's not going to just go away on its own. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week. You all have a great week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.